0: Boundless enclosure. A Scandifuturist futurist creation myth by Irix Dorsond. In the beginning was Ginungaga, the room without doors, windows, floor, or ceiling. There was no art on the walls, in fact, there were no walls and no space beyond them. But the room had two corners. One was hot and dry, the other was cold and humid, and where they met, a poison fumed. Out of this poison, having dripped from the cold humidity towards the lukewarm middle, sprang a cow, and then a creature with arms and legs. Imir, he who hums, without kin and of uncertain sex. The tooting primeval giant was, however, not long alone. New beings oozed from his sweating pores and they looked a lot like himself. They were much smaller than Aymir, though small is probably a misnomer in this scale. His limbs and members fucked each other and became with child. Children sprung forth in increasing numbers, some had seven arms others free legs, nine hundred heads, cauliflower ears, pig eyes, and concave, inverted faces. A dewy rock came hovering, a salt block, cold and humid, levitated through the room without walls, through a window that did not yet exist. The cow began to lick away at the salty boulder, and I'll be a monkey's uncle if a new creature didn't pop out of that too. But this was different. It was a sculpture of a creature, a practically perfect and symmetrical being. A god. Buri, he who shapes he settled on among Aymir's kin called the Jotnar, or Giants. He got laid too, and from his line a new people sprung called the Æsir, the gods. Odin, which somewhat simplified means mind or ecstasy, lived there with his brothers, Vili and We, In the Æsir diaspora who, despite some genetic relation, had little in common with their trollish neighbors, who were born of the poison of pure life. Now it was getting hard to breathe in there. It was getting crowded. There were whites of all kinds, ogres, trolls both great and small and buckets of Jotnar. Grotesque critters who cried and chuckled, scratched and yanked and bit each other's tails. They shrieked and farted with rivalry in an eternal cacophony without beginning nor end. Yet, for the most part, they were drowsy and did nothing at all. They merely sat there and trembled trembled so hard that they began cracking at the touch skin to skin with sparks and cinders flying all the while Iamir did their eardrums in with his incessant tooting his atonal shriek was incomprehensible it was so cramped and so loud that one could hardly even hear one so fake All was white noise and entwined asymmetrical anatomies in this massive room of no ambition (laughs) <laughs> then one day, the gods decided they'd had it with this damn mess. They'd had it with time and space without direction, and so they killed Eimer and ripped him apart. <laughs> Piece by piece, limb by limb, so blood and guts spattered in all directions. That was the day that culture came to Ginungagap. The Jotnar clung for their lives, to each hair of the primeval giant's convulsing hulk of a body, members and genitals contorted in post-mortem spasm, severed feet and elbows stampeded across Aymir's own carcass without even a floor to fall on. Kinungagap was filled with billions of ogre cries, both air-deafening and faint, as their ancestral father trampled them all into oblivion, their lifeless bodies flushed into the toilet of eternity by the blood that spilled out onto the vast, expansive anti-floor flooding the pre-cosmic room, but the gods realizing that this was their chance, kept their cool. They squeezed the juice out, weighed the body down, tugged and broke it apart until a landscape revealed itself. The flesh was torn off the bones, standing tall as mountains. They fashioned the sky from the skull of the ancient giant and exhibited it in the highest heavens. Thus the world was created. An assemblage of bones and innards. The gods spoke and the word began to breed words. The deed began to breed deeds. New life. New floras emerged. First natural, then artificial life. The few whites, ogres and trolls that survived the bloody deluge, sought shelter in glens, caves, under bluffs, or in the deepest recesses of the earth. The gods engineered creatures of their own to toil in their various cosmological tasks, to haul the dawn and divide the hours. Once they had separated night and day, land and sea, they dug ditches, timbered houses, tilled the soil, ate food, drank drink, played games, and recited verse. But this was not enough, for the gods had much to do, and were too busy to populate the earth. The very front line of the eternal war of gods and giants. They created man and woman, dull and impotent beta copies of themselves. The humans impersonated the gods, repeating their great work in every undertaking but they were fragile and unimpressive little things. The fact remained that their dependency, as well as their tendency to die like flies, was seen as a benefit by the divines who desired no competition. Mankind was separated from wild animals by virtue of their intelligence, consciousness, and self-destructive neurosis. We stood lodged in the middle between over, middle, and underworldly powers, we stood lodged in the middle. While we descended from gods, we lived among trolls. It was inevitable that trolls' blood came to pump through our veins. Now we live in a world of time and change where nothing stands still, the polar opposite of the pre cosmic space. Quite unlike the world of the ideal forms postulated by Plato, there were no archetypes in Genungagap that defined the ideal shape of a fish or differentiated it from a chair. It demands that the pre-cosmic state is described through allegory and negation. Nonetheless, order would never occur if chaos had not provided its source. We live in a world pretending to cater to humanity, though it exhibits cold animosity against us at every turn. That is why we saw the need to move indoors, assemble in cities and villages, and make fences, till the soil, and lay tarmac. To the gods, art was the ultimate goal. To fashion a world that was completely artificial. But we don't live in such a world. Art, in one sense, is the opposite of nature. The troll, whether it lives in so-called nature or within ourselves, forces itself to the surface as often as it can. There was a time when they lay with broken backs in the mythological golden age but that was long ago. The gods had left us to our own devices, but man was there, and the troll rose again. They want back. Not to a world of yesterday, but the day before yesterday. To the primordial, boundless gap. They have not forgotten Aymir, Potent and vitalistic culture is microbial compared to the natural universe. This is why we depict chaos and disorder symbolically as natural landscapes, uncultivated land and forest. We are destined to cut our way through the jungle, to chop it down and make order or die. The founding of any society. Or culture relies on access to resources. And so man carries culture like a torch through the night, trapped in the coincidence of opposites. Thank you for listening to this reading on the Brute Norse podcast. This is actually a small excerpt from an essay called The Trollish Theory of Art, which I published in an excellent little magazine called Scandinavian Kunstforum, The Darkness Edition. In this essay, I have attempted to create a theory of aesthetics rooted in Scandinavian folklore and a dualistic tension of order and chaos that we see in Norse mythology. I would say that my theory is comparable to what Nietzsche calls the Apollonian and the Dionysian, with one important distinction, namely that trolls and giants in Norse mythology are distinctly natural anti-cultural entities, whereas Apollo and Dionysus are both divine Olympian beings. Perhaps it would be more honest to say that my theory relates more to the Olympian versus the Chthonian, but I do feel that the pre-Christian Norse worldview offers insights that are very different from the Greco-Roman classical mode of thought, and I think that it's been horribly overlooked, and I'm trying to rectify this by developing new modes of seeing things that hopefully will make the world a more novel and interesting place. So in a sense you could say that the gods and giants exist in a sort of uh, reactionary relationship to each other. In a sense the trolls are uh, radical. They want to, to scrap culture, scrap civilization, they want to destroy the current order and return to the disorder that was before, where they belong, essentially. Forced to use artifice as a tool in order to survive. And the trolls and the giants are more ancient than the gods. But gods and giants uh, coexist in a sense. They intermingle and they sink and rise to each other's levels in the battle to gain the upper hand, cosmologically speaking. If we're going to look at this from a philosophical point of view, I think that this battle of order and chaos takes place within us all. The troll can be many things within us. The troll can be your personal laziness, or it could be your personality traits that isn't very charming or good. But this is also a very complicated subject, uh, because there is no clear distinction between one or the other in Norse mythology. Because the world we exist in in Norse mythology is uh, created from the merging of opposite things. This is the principle of creation. Things that are ultimately contrasting, when they are merged, create new things. To a certain extent, this is also reflected in the aesthetic ideals of skaldic poetry. There we have something we might call mutant metaphors. I am among those who argue that skaldic poetry is an example of surrealist art. Because surrealism and pre-Christian art both make use of contrasting oppositional units. Incongruence and the unexpected. In order to captivate us, consider for example Dali's melting clock and the dichotomy between the solid and the liquid, and the intermediate position that time itself seems to exist in. Skaldic poetry was considered the highest form of art in Norse culture, but at the same time, pagan poets were self deprecating. They compared performing poetry to vomiting. In one sense, the poet likens himself to the god Odin when he stole the meat of poetry and in eagle form puked the meat of poetry out of his body. When the poet is performing, he is, in a sense, vomiting out the meat of poetry. He is serving the meat of poetry so that others can take inspiration from him. But at the same time, the poet is also making use of contrastive imagery, which uh, scholic poetry is full of. To a modern audience, Skullic poetry is very morbid. Consider for example uh, the battlefield. The battlefield is called the, the feast of ravens in a sense ravens are being anthropomorphized that they liken animal behavior to human behavior and also they are taking something that is grotesque dangerous frightening and they're portraying it as if it was pleasant the feast is a pleasant occasion but the battlefield is not so if we assume that this was part of how people made sense of the world the pre-christian scandinavians thought that Things that are pure and noble must necessarily be mirrored by that which is filthy and abhorrent. I think that this is also somewhat mirrored in the Hermetic principle of as above, so below. As humans, we carry both divine and anti divine qualities. This is bound to surface in all our undertakings, including art, and uh, that which is trollish appeals to our base instincts, basically, while the Divine represents our need to free ourselves from the shackles of nature, to rise above it, to create new things, and entertain ourselves. As such, uh, inorganic, uh, minimalist design and functionalism is one distinctly modern expression of the aesir, that is to say the divine, art perspective. The ogreish or trollish art, on the other hand, would be very organic, bordering on the nihilistic, misanthropic, and humorous it makes fun of that which is lofty. Like uh, Duchamp's Fountain, which is uh, one famous example of of modern art. It's a found object, it was actually a a urinal, exhibited as if it was a sculpture. This is trollish because trolls are enemies of polite society. And uh, this is, of course, in a sense, nihilistic. But as polite society adopts these protests, the troll redefines itself. The fate of Duchamp's fountain is trollish in itself, because the original urinal was thrown out as trash. The ones on exhibit currently are reproductions of that piece of art, so they are commissioned pieces imitating a piece of art that was originally a found object. The natural development from there, one could argue, was if somebody took these pieces and pissed all over them, thereby reversing the development of the original piece, reducing them again to the function. Urinal. This would have been trollish in the same aspect that uh, Duchamp, in a sense, was trollish. I don't think that he did this without any humor whatsoever. And of course, when Duchamp created this, he caused a scandal. Now that the so called fountain has been canonized, so to speak, it would cause quite a stir if somebody reappropriated the sculpture for its original purpose, of course. Anyway, thank you for listening. My name is Eirek Storsund, and if you want to support the podcast or the blog, or if you like what I do, there are a number of ways in which you can support me. There's a Brute Norse Facebook page, as I'm sure that most people might be aware of. Some might not be. Uh, I'm on Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast, of course. Uh, You can also support me on Patreon. Pledge your support as much or as little as you can. And you'll find me at patreon.com forward slash Brute Norse. I also hope to produce some uh, merchandise in the future. Tote bags, pins, that sort of stuff. But I want to make it nice. I want to make something that is kind of creative, not just make stuff with the logo on it or whatever. So if you have any pointers or wishes or suggestions in that regard, don't be afraid to reach out. Uh, And also, if you have any feedback, anything you like, you dislike, whatever it is, feel free to contact me as well. On that note, I think that the only thing left to say is hail Oksal. Be healthy and happy. Have a great day.